Our sermon text this morning is found on the back of your order of worship. If you'd like to look at it there, it's Genesis 6, 9 to 22. I invite you now to listen again once more to God's holy and inerrant word. It is more to be desired than gold, beloved, even much fine gold. The word of God is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a room, I'm sorry, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come, shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is to be eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. <clears throat> he did all that God commanded him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. O blessed Lord, you caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. 
And we ask now for your spirit to abide with us, that we might, by your grace and mercy, read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In order to read the Bible rightly, we have to not only pay attention to the particular text that we're reading, but also notice how this text relates to the larger overall story that the Bible is telling. You see, the Bible is, I would argue, I don't think this is a hard thing to argue, the greatest work of literature ever written, the most complex, most beautiful, and like any great work of literature, the themes that develop throughout the pages of Scripture are not only those that are stated explicitly by the author, but also those that are hidden in the details of the text that require us to pay attention and dig a little. In other words, what I'm arguing for is the idea that the Bible, taken as a whole, is a deep, complex, immersive work that builds on itself and fits together perfectly in every way. Because although it may have had dozens of human authors and be, have been written over thousands and thousands of years, the scriptures also only have one divine author, a single divine author, the Holy Spirit who is bringing all the threads together as the scriptures are being written into one remarkable tapestry. You see, reading the Bible on its own terms, paying attention to what it's doing, paying attention to its symbolism, its typology, is essential for us to understand the depth and richness of its meaning. And that means in order to properly understand the text that is before us today, we're going to have to think deeply about the details of the text and why they're there and how they fit into the grand narrative of the Scripture. The details matter in the Scripture. All of the details, all of them matter. In our text this morning, the God who made heaven and earth determines, as he himself puts it, to make an end of all flesh. He says, for the earth is filled with violence, with the violence of Cain, particularly, has spread everywhere. But even as God comes to judge the evil of the world, he elects to preserve both human and animal life, and he does it in this way. He finds Noah, a righteous man, a man that walks with him like Enoch, his ancestor, and he tells him with very precise instructions to build an ark, a kind of giant wooden box, so that he and the animals that the Lord will send to him can float on the waters of judgment and be saved. Now, it's worth mentioning here at the outset that it it might have been otherwise, this story, this narrative. God could have saved Noah and his family and the animals in some other manner. He could, have, for example, have, have just led Noah and the animals to a, to a special valley that was 
protected in some way from the floodwaters, that the Lord um, could have protected it sovereignly and supernaturally, but he didn't do that. He told Noah to build an ark. And so when we come to the story, if we're going to understand it rightly, we have to ask questions like, why did God do it this way? Why an ark as the vessel of salvation? And why an ark built in precisely this manner according to these instructions? So let's talk about this ark for a few minutes. The first thing to say is that the very precise instructions that the God gives Noah about how to build the ark in this text are not given because Noah is ignorant, because he doesn't know how to make things. You see, human society has come quite a long way by this point in history. They are building cities and making musical instruments and forging instruments of bronze and iron. In fact, very, in very short order after the flood, Noah's descendants, you'll recall, will build a giant tower to heaven. So they don't lack for knowledge about how to make things. If God had simply wanted Noah to build a large boat, and he could have let Noah figure out the details, he could have done that. He could have told Noah, build a boat, a large boat, large enough for lots of animals, and Noah could have done it. But God doesn't do that. He tells Noah exactly how to build it with precise measurements and specification. And this should indicate to us that the Lord is not merely giving Noah a way of not dying in the flood to come. No, he's doing something much more mysterious and I would say interesting than that. This is what he says. The Lord says to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof, or sometimes this word is translated a window, for the ark, or a skylight and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish, or more literally, I will continue, I will maintain my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now the first thing to see in this portion of our text this morning is that despite what you may have seen in popular images or Sunday school curriculum of Noah's Ark, what God tells Noah to build here is not really a sailing vessel. There are words in the Hebrew language to describe ships and boats and sailing vessels, but the Hebrew word that is given here in Genesis 6 to 9, translated Ark, is not any of those words. It is not a Hebrew word for ship or boat 
or sailing vessel. It's actually a very uncommon word that simply means box or chest. And the only other time it appears in the Hebrew scriptures is in the story of Moses when he was a baby and his parents put him into the Nile River. That basket that his parents placed them in is referred also by the same Hebrew word that is translated here as ark. And if you look at the measurements that God gives Noah for this ark, this box, this chest that he is to build, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall, you can see this is not a vessel that is built to cut through the waves. Now, this is a giant wooden chest, a giant wooden box, a giant wooden house, we might say, simply built to float on the surface of the waters. It didn't have to go anywhere in particular. It wasn't headed to a certain port, right? It wasn't going to Athens or Rome or wherever. It just had to float until the floodwaters subsided and God would direct its course. Now God tells Noah to make the ark of gopher wood. No one knows what gopher wood is. It's kind of wood, obviously, but no one knows what the word gopher means. That's simply just a transliteration of the actual Hebrew word in the text. If anyone tells you they know what gopher wood is, they don't, I promise you. And it has nothing to do with the small animal, mammal, that we refer to as a gopher in the English language. So God tells Noah to make the ark out of wood. The wood part is important, I would argue. And to make rooms in it. And to cover it with pitch. Now, the size of this ark, this chest, wooden chest that the Lord, wooden house that the Lord tells Noah to build is enormous. The ark was to be 300 cubits long. That's about 450 feet long. For context sake, 450 feet is over, is over half as long as the Titanic was, right? That amazing, colossal feat of engineering in the early part of the 20th century. Noah's ark was over half the length of the Titanic. If this helps you imagine it, 450 feet is one and a half football fields or just under one-tenth of a mile long. This is a huge structure that the Lord is telling Noah to build. In addition to its length, the ark is to be 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. It is massive. The Lord also specifies that the ark is to have a roof, or this word is also difficult to translate. Some argue it might mean window or skylight, somewhere where air can come in that is also covered, perhaps. And a door in its side. One door. That's important. One way in, one way out. And that it should be built with three distinct separate sections. A lower deck, a second deck, a third deck. Now, fascinatingly, the very fact that the Lord gives us such special blueprints and plans for the ark helps us understand what the ark is for. 
You see, in the scriptures, if you read them from beginning to end, there are only a very few structures where we receive a detailed account of how long and wide and deep they are to be. And so the fact that we receive this information about the ark means that we should consider it carefully and think about it in comparison to those other structures. The first structure we get this kind of detail for is the ark that Noah will build. But the only other places in the scriptures where precise measurements are given for structures, for things that will be made, are all temples, places where God's special presence will dwell with his people, where he will commune with them, places that will be, in a sense, where heaven and earth will meet together. As we heard in our Old Testament reading from Exodus, the next place in the scriptures where the Lord will give precise measurements for a structure to be built is when he will tell Moses how, with excruciating detail, that cover multiple chapters, we only began to read the very beginning of it, of how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness after he covenants with his people at Sinai. Precise measurements then appear again later in the Old Testament when Solomon builds the permanent tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. The last two places precise measurements are given occur both in visions. First, in the vision of Ezekiel in chapters 40 and following. If you're not familiar with those chapters, that's where the Lord gives Ezekiel this remarkable vision of the temple that will come. The temple from which, interestingly, waters will flow out and not bring death, but rather life to the world around them. And then, as we heard in our New Testament reading this morning, the last place where precise measurements are given for a structure is when John receives the vision of the new Jerusalem. The bride, the church, as the angel says, and is given precise measurements for that city. That city, of course, is also the dwelling place, the temple of God. In addition, the fact that the ark has three distinct sections should also point us toward correspondence with both the tabernacle and the temple, structures that God very explicitly commanded to be built with three different sections. Interestingly, the tabernacle and temple also only have one way of entrance, one door in, one door out, just like the ark. Finally, another piece of evidence underscoring the ark's proto-temple character is that Noah is clearly meant to be understood as a priest. God orders explicitly for Noah to take sacrificial animals with him, extra animals, as we'll see next week. And the first thing Noah will do after he returns to dry land will be to build an altar to the Lord, the first explicit record of an altar being built by anyone, and then offering sacrifices and burnt offering to God. You see, the ark, understood in this way, is meant to be a kind of floating temple, I would argue. A picture of the universal church throughout the ages. Outside of the ark, there's only death and destruction as God pours out his judgment on the wicked by means of the floodwaters. But inside the ark, there God is present 
in a special way. In the ark, God is present to save, to deliver, to keep safe, to protect, and to continue to maintain his covenant with his people, with Noah and his offspring. But, interestingly, the ark is not only a kind of temple and picture of the church, it also is the seed of the new creation, of the new world that God will bring after the flood. As the Lord goes on to explain in verses 19 to 22, he tells Noah, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. These are animals that walk on four legs. And then of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now this is one of, of course, the most fascinating parts of the whole Noah narrative. God's special intention and particular care for the preservation of animal life. It's a huge part of the story. In this, of course, we see God's commitment to his world is not limited just to the human beings or the human souls that he set at the crown of his creation. No, God loves all that he has made. God loves what he makes. And given that the great flood is a foreshadowing of the last judgment, as we talked about last week, the judgment that Jesus will bring on the last day, the intentional preservation of animals in this narrative gives us, I think, both insight and confidence that God's plan of redemption includes animals as well in the new heavens and the new earth to come that our Lord Jesus will bring. In fact, if you think about it for a moment, the reason God told Noah to build such a massive ark, the reason for such a gargantuan and complicated project in terms of its scale was all about the animals. It's because of the animals that Noah had to do this. If, if the ark only had to hold Noah and his family, it, would, it could have been much smaller, right? But God's commitment to his creation, to what he has made, God's commitment in particular to animal life in this narrative, the animals that he made, the animals that he called good, is so significant that he instructs Noah to serve those animals by spending a hundred years building a much larger ark than he needed to make, exponentially larger than it would have been needed had its purpose merely been to save and protect human life. That's worth thinking about, I think. Notice also that Noah didn't have to go out and find the animals, right, for the ark. No, God says to Noah that two of every sort of animal shall come into you to keep them alive. God would supernaturally bring the animals by his spirit 
to Noah at the right time, and then Noah would take them into the ark with him. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened, but it's fun to think about. Like, did the animals just slowly come over time, over the years, and wait under the trees, watching Noah build the ark with his sons? Or did they just appear all at once at the end, just before the rain began to fall? We don't know. But either way, this picture is strongly reminiscent of an earlier text in the Bible, in Genesis 2, where in the Garden of Eden, the Lord, what does he do there? He brings to Adam every sort of animal is brought to Adam so that he can give them their name. You see, Noah here is a kind of new Adam, and he will rule over the animals all the months that the ark will float on the waters peacefully, in much the same way that Adam ruled over the animals in the garden, even before his fall from grace, his sin. In fact, in many ways, the ark is meant to be understood as a kind of floating garden of Eden. Right? You have Noah and his wife, the new Adam and Eve, along with their children. You have the ark, made of wood, like the trees of the garden. You have the animals living peaceably under the rule of their human masters. And indeed, in Genesis 9, after the flood, when Noah and the animals are able to re-enter the new world, God repeats the same command to Noah and his family that he first gave to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, in this way, Noah's ark is not simply a convenient vessel for surviving a massive flood, but as the ark floats on the waters, it becomes, in a fundamental way, the seed of the new creation, as well as a profound picture of God's mercy. In the face of human violence and wickedness, God might simply have ended human life and destroyed entirely the world that he had made. But that's not what he does. That is not who our God is. Instead, God will judge the world through water, but he causes an ark to be built, an ark that is to be a refuge, a place of salvation and protection from the deluge that the Lord will bring. Outside the ark, there is nothing but death, I mean, do you see the picture, friends, that the ark is? Outside of the ark, there's nothing but destruction and death. But God, in the ark, through the ark, is maintaining his covenant with humanity. And inside the ark, under the rule of the new Adam, the one who points to the second Adam, there is safety and life and the seed of the new creation, the new world, that will come after God's judgment is complete. And beloved, in this way, the ark is a powerful sign for us of the character of our God. This is who he is from the beginning of Scripture to the end. Will our God always judge evil? Yes, absolutely, he will. But in his judgment, the living God, the one whose character is always to have mercy, 
will also always provide for us a way of escape, a way of protection, a refuge, a way of deliverance. And in this way, the ark becomes a powerful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and the church that he builds. And that's something that I think is worth reflecting on deeply. Indeed, we will reflect on that more in the weeks ahead. It's also worth remembering that our Lord Jesus, who must have been thinking of the flood that he had once sent long before, thousands of years before, is also the one who taught his disciples and us, saying this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, our Lord says, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, or that ark, we might say. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, for the way that your word is a cohesive whole, for the way that you invite us to read it carefully, slowly, even over the years of our lives, Father. And I pray as we meditate, on this portion of your word this week, that we would grow in our gratitude for the way in which you have brought us salvation, the way that you have brought us into living communion with your Son and have made us his body, his bride, those whom he will keep safe through the storm. We give you thanks for these things. In Christ's name, amen.